to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Philip Borsov, our pastor in Pretoria, tweeted this week that when he was young, he was told you mustn't talk about religion and politics and that this Sunday is going to talk about both religion and politics and <laughs> I'm going to do the same so let's just let's just pray to the Lord and consecrate this time to the Lord Father we just want to thank you for time that we can come together in your name and around your word and Lord have your presence in us and among us Lord it's such a privilege Lord Lord that we can publicly meet in your name Lord and we just pray Lord that that um, as we dedicate this time to you, Lord, that you will please speak to us, each one of us. Lord, you know our hearts, you know where we are, Lord, um, and you know how you want to use us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you'll equip us and empower us, Lord, to be spokesmen and spokeswomen for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I've um, entitled my sermon, the, The Problem and Promise of Human Government. And, um, you know, as we've as been mentioned a few times uh, during the service so far, on the 3rd of August, this, is, this coming Wednesday, is going to be our local elections. And uh, I think um, many of us probably have a sense that um, this is an important time for South Africa, that it's, in, in, in many ways, we're hoping it's a, it's a sort of a turning of the tide where, where God is going to take us uh, into a new direction, maybe heal a lot of the the hurts of the past, maybe um, restore a few things. But, um, you know, I've, I've found that because of, you know, what Philip said, you know, when, when we were young and even now we're told, you know, don't discuss religion and politics, you know, because too many people disagree on that. The tendency is because we don't discuss it, because we never talk about, you know, politics and especially about religion and politics together, we, we don't learn we don't teach one another and we don't learn together to think in a biblical Christian way about politics. Um, and, and what I found is that most of us, especially in South Africa, um, you know, when we think about politics, we, we, we think not out of a Christian worldview, but not out of a Christian perspective, but out of a secular humanistic perspective. And secular humanism is a whole different ideology. Uh, very different from Christianity in many ways. And it's understandable in one sense that we would think from that perspective because that's all that we get in the media, in the public um, discourse, you know, is, is secular humanism. And everything is discussed, everything around politics is discussed in the context and in the light of secular humanism. And, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why we don't learn to think biblically about politics the way that we that we really should and and one way of seeing this is um, South Africa's government system is called um, proportional representation that's that's the part of the system that South Africa's politics is based on Um, the interesting thing is if you look at South Africa's uh, sort of religious uh, you know break uh, breakdown and demography about 77% 77% of South Africans claim to be Christians. So in other words, about it's in, I can't remember whether it was 77 or but it's somewhere around there in the high 70% of, 
of, of people in South Africa actually self-identify as Christian. Now, now, of course, we know that not everyone who claims to be a Christian really is a Christian. Um, many people are nominal Christian. Many people are traditional Christians. They sort of just inherited Christianity as their family religion, but they never really committed their own hearts to Jesus and became a Jesus follower. So we, we understand that. But if you compare that, for instance, 77-odd percent claiming to be Christian with um, how people vote in South Africa, the, the big three um, parties, the ANC, the DA, and the EFF, um, I think the ANC is more than 60% of the vote. The DA, sort of the mid-20%, I think it's maybe 22 or 24%. The EFF, just under 10%. So between them, if my math serves me correctly, it's over 90% of the vote that the, that the biggest three parties have. And one thing that all three of those parties have in common is that they're extremely liberal and they secular humanistic. Of course, the ANC is secular humanistic, but it's become it's leaning very strongly also to the Marxist side with the uh, South Africa Communist Party and, and the influence it has there. The DA is or purely secular humanistic, and the EFF is, EFF is moving a lot more to the Marxist side. So here's the point. Here you have 77-odd percent of South Africans claiming to be Christians, and therefore you'd expect them to have a Christian worldview, and yet more than 90% of the population vote for parties that don't have a Christian worldview. In other words, in South Africa we don't... As the saying goes, we don't vote our values. We have certain values, but we vote not based on those values. So it, it tells you that there's a bit of a disconnect there. Some things, you know, um, you would ask, I mean, where, is, where are the Christians? And if we, um, here's the thing, if, if our system is a proportional representation system, then it means that you vote for someone to go and represent you in the structures of leadership of the country. So are the people that you're voting for, can they actually represent you? That's the question. And here's a, a, a scary question. I, uh, Philip and I were talking about this in the week, and he asked us his, uh, this question. I thought, man, that's a good question. He said, one day, on Judgment Day, am I going to be held accountable for the, people, for the choices of the people who I chose to represent me? Am I going to be held accountable for the choices of the people that I mandated with my vote to represent me? And I think the reality is if the choices that political parties make are in line with their policy, their public policy that everyone knows, that they publish on their websites and so on, everyone knows what their public policy is. If they make choices in line with that public policy and we knew what that public policy was and we voted for them, and then they make choices in line with that public policy, I, I think there's a strong case to be made that, yes, we will be held accountable. Because we knew what their policy was, we knew what kind of decisions they would make, and we still chose them to represent us. A couple of months ago, I, I shared a bit about Romans 13, about government and, and how um, you know, God um, appoints gov governing authorities. And one of the things that I shared was that in a demo democratic system, we are not only subject to the governing authorities, 
we participate in government. In other words, because we vote and because we can actually stand for public office, we actually are called to participate as part of the governing authority. We are the governing authorities. We appoint them in, in one sense, but we can also stand as them and we can also we, we exercise our vote. And we, not only our vote, but I mean, you know, if someone commits a crime, then we're expected, according to law, to intervene. Okay? So, so we're part of the governing authorities in that sense. So we have that responsibility upon us. So I think it's with that question that Philip asked that I think is a great question. You know, will I be held accountable? That, that, that we're coming to the text um, uh, today. Uh, Isaiah 33, and uh, I was so glad that Colleen uh, read Isaiah 32. Isaiah 33, verse, verse 22. We can just bring that up on the screen. There we go. It says, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And, you know, just on a... On a very general level, in terms of, of um, politics, you might have heard the, the phrase separation of powers. Know where it comes from? It comes from that scripture. It comes from that scripture. The, the idea of separation of powers is not a secular humanistic idea. We often think it is, Right? Because we hear it in the sort of public discourse, you know, uh, you know, which is sort of just saturated with, with humanism and humanistic language. We think, okay, well, this is the idea that humanists came up with. No, it wasn't. Humanists would not have come up with the idea of separation of powers. Because humanists, the ideology or religion of humanism, believes that humans are basically good. Right? You, you've probably heard that. People are basically good. In other words, people are basically good and society sort of somehow, society which is supposedly made up of basically good people, somehow makes people bad. I don't know how that works, but anyway, that's, that's the theory behind it. But if people are basically good, there's no problem giving someone who's basically good a lot of power. Because if they're basically good, they're going to use it for good. So secular humanism would never have come up with the idea of separation of powers. Whereas biblical Christianity believes that People are created in the image of God, so there's some good in them. But they are also fallen. We have fallen from the image of God. We are tainted with sin. And we are actually, according to Scripture, basically evil. I mean, Jesus believed this, right? And what he said? He said then, um, which of you, you know, if your child is um, hungry, you know, will give him a... Stone instead of a bread, etc., etc. You remember that passage? And then he says something. He said, if you then, being evil. Oh my goodness, Jesus. <laughs> we need to take you for some you know, political correctness training there. You know? That's not a nice word to use about people. You know? Jesus, that's such a strong statement. If you being evil. And I mean, he's talking to religious people here. Remember, he's not talking to, you know... Um, Roman, Greco-Roman citizens who are idolaters and who are, you know, into debauchery and all kinds of sexual immorality and that kind of... He's talking to Jews who serve Yahweh, who are monogamous, you know, one husband, one wife, that kind of thing, you know, and who, who don't, who are not wild party animals except the, you know, the tax collectors and, and those, those guys. 
But, but he wasn't talking to her. He was talking to the basic, you know, average Jew who was generally a moral person. And he says to these religious Jews who are basically moral people, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him or give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And um, it's, it's, it sort of strikes us when you think about it. If you then being evil, Jesus' perception of human nature was that human na- humans are basically evil. Humans are na- basically fallen. Humans are basically sinful. And if you look at, at, at church history, I, this one guy, I can't remember who it was, said that um, the doctrine of sin, you know, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and, and all that, the doctrine of sin is, is one of the few empirically verifiable doctrines in the Bible. You can just look around you and you can measure it and you can actually empirically verify that, yes, people are sinful. <laughs> People are fallen. Okay? In fact, all people are fallen. It's not very hard to verify this. And because biblical Christianity believes, the biblical Christian worldview believes that people are, in a sense, created in the image of God, and therefore they can still give good gifts, according to the scripture I just quoted, but they've fallen from that image of God, and therefore they are inherently evil and sinful, Biblical Christianity believes you should not give too much power to one individual or to one group because they are going to abuse that power. Human nature tells us fallen human beings will abuse the power that is given to them and therefore there must be checks and balances. Therefore, there must be separation of powers. And, and according to that scripture, the, you know, the, the reformers you know, in Europe and the guys who went across to America... Um, said, but, you know, if human beings are, have a capacity to be able to do good because they created the image of God, but because of sin, they become evil and fallen from that image of God, there must be a separation of powers. And, and there you see the three major centers of power in government. There's the Lord, and obviously the capital letter Lord in, in the Bible is a translation of Yahweh. So it's Yahweh is our judge. Judiciary. Yahweh is our lawgiver, the legislature, and Yahweh is our king, the executive. So the judiciary um, judge based on the laws. The legislature, they're the lawgivers who, who formulate the laws and make the laws in parliament and that kind of thing. And the executive are the ones who execute. They apply um, the laws. Uh, to the land. And, and what that scripture says is that God is the only one who can be all three at once. Because God is the only one who's not only not corrupted, but he's not corruptible. All human beings are corrupt and corruptible, and therefore they cannot occupy all three of those at once. In fact, they, can only apply, uh, they, can only, uh, they should ideally only occupy one of those. And there should be other people, independent people. Occupying the others. And, and one of the big problems we've experienced in the last while, um, for instance, under the Zuma administration, is that there hasn't, you know, there's been an infringement on that separation of powers. Uh, and he's been able to, unfortunately, put people who are not independent into certain positions. And that accountability structure has been broken down. And we as Christians should not only pray, but work for this form of government, because the reality is we need it. 
It, it doesn't matter what human being is in a position of power. Any human being, if they have too much power, they will start abusing it because that is human nature. And we should expect that. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens because that is the way human nature works. Um, so there's the separation of powers and only the Lord should occupy all three of those at once. Um, I, I don't know if you realize or if we realize as Christians how often how important human government is to God. What I want to do in the next couple of minutes is just trace this theme of human government. I want to show you that that, this is actually one of the major themes in the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And this might surprise you. And I'm I'm not even going to take all the verses that apply to this. I'm just going to take a couple of them. But I think as representatives, they're going to show us you know, what a powerful theme it is. In fact, you can, I will go so far as to say that you can take the, you can take the story of the Bible, the big story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you can sum it up in terms of human government. Now, that sounds like a big statement. You're going to say, oh, I'd like to see you do that. <laughs> Watch me. <laughs> okay. So, First, uh, right at the beginning in Genesis 1, God says uh, in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. In other words, rule over it. Okay, what does that tell you? Genesis is a powerful, it's, it's the book of beginnings. So it tells you God's intentions about everything. So here it says that God created man in his image to rule on his behalf, in his stead. In other words, we as human beings, were our, God's initial intention for us was to represent him as vice regents or rulers in his place on earth. God intended mankind to rule the earth. God's intention for the earth was for it to be ruled by human beings. Can you see that? But obviously ruled by human beings that are created in his image and that would accurately um, represent him in ruling the earth. In other words, rule the earth the way that he would have ruled in his stead. Um, Another thing that you might, that's maybe a bit more subtle that you might not notice, notice it says in verse 28, and God blessed them. That's the the man and his, and his wife, Adam and Eve. Okay? It says, God blessed them and God said to them. Not God said to him. God said to them. Plural. Be fruitful and multiply. You're going to struggle to be fruitful and multiply by yourself. For those who don't know yet. Um, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, just remember, this is before the fall. So God's intention was for the earth to be filled with people who represent his image. So his image has not yet been tarnished. So the way to multiply the image of God on the earth before the fall was to have children. Because those children are then born in the image of God. This is the Old Covenant or Old Testament, pre-fall, equivalent of the Great Commission. Fill the earth with people who who reflect my image and who can rule the earth. So he says, he said to them, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, rule over it. So God's plan for rulership was never in the, you know, just individual rulership. 
There was a plurality of leadership which God wanted from the beginning. So the Christian biblical idea of leadership, of rulership, is never just me ruling alone. It's us ruling. And just by the way, if I can just pull it through all the way to Revelation, you might say, but hang on, hang on, hang on. in Revelation there's one king and that's Jesus. Yes, but he has a bride next to him who's going to rule with him. Let's not miss that. We are that bride. Um, okay, so the, the thing I want you to see there is that right from the beginning, God's intention was for man, for human beings, to rule the earth in his stead, represent him as such. And another thing that I want you to see, and, and that is important, that we sometimes as Christians tend to forget, is that we were initially created in God's image. And yes, it only took two more chapters after Genesis 1 for mankind to fall and to sin against God and to fall away from that image. But we never completely lost that image. Right? We still, even though we've fallen, even though that image of God in us has been tarnished severely, we still, all human beings, every single human being still has a part of the image of God in us. And that's why we are still capable of good. And that's why even politicians in South Africa, Europe, the East, wherever, who are not Christians, are capable of good. Because they still have vestiges of the image of God in them. And we must, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., we must appeal to what is best in people. He actually said it in terms of his opponents. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was, was one of the leaders of the um, civil rights movement in America. Um, and, and he was a very dedicated Christian. Very, very dedicated. He was a pastor, in fact. And, and he said, you know, his, his strategy was not to attack and to belittle and to try and um, undermine people who disagreed with him and even persecuted him but to appeal to what is best in them. To appeal to the good in them. Because he believed this. He believed that they were created in the image of God. And even though they'd fallen from the image of God, there was still some of the image of God in them. So he'd appeal to that. And we should do the same. You know, I think sometimes we as Christians think our only way to get involved in government is to criticize. It's not. We can also appeal to the good in people. The little bit that's still left there. Remember Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, even evil human beings, fallen human beings who are in Jesus' judgment evil, still have vestiges of good and can still do good things. That's the reality and we should embrace that and we should um, appeal to that in, in people's lives. So here we have both the, the problem in the fall, we have both the problem and the promise of human government. The problem is we've fallen from the image of God. We no longer perfectly represent him. We misrepresent him. We do evil. We are, in fact, infected with evil, if I can put it that way. But the promise is there's still something of God's image left in us. And in the next scripture, as we're going to see, Genesis 20, 49, verse 10 says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. It's talking about a descendant of Judah. It says, and the scepter will not depart from Judah. Scepter being the, the, the right to rule. 
until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations will be to him. Not only is the promise of, of human government that even though we've fallen, we still have some of the image of God that we can reflect in our ruling the earth. But there is one who perfectly reflects the image of God who, who will come. A descendant of Judah. From the tribe of Judah. The lion of Judah. And I like that song that we sang. You know, what they knew in shadow in the Old Testament, we know the substance of. It's Jesus the King. Um, Exodus 6 verse 7 and 11 says, God says, And I will take you to be my people and I will be, uh, be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And, and already here we see human government being abused and people being oppressed. And Israel for, for 400 odd years were oppressed in slavery under the king of, of Egypt, Pharaoh. And he oppressed them. And we see human government being abused. And God actually saying, I'm going to punish this human government. I'm going to bring my people out to freedom um, from under this, this tyranny. And, and he says uh, to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt uh, to let the people of Israel go out of the land. Let my people go. Let them go free. So we see that the Bible doesn't have a naive view of human government. I don't think any I don't think any religion or human philosophy has as balanced and nuanced a view of humanity and human government as the Bible. If you really want to understand the complexities of politics, you need to approach it from a Christian perspective. Because Christianity tells you both the good that we are capable of, but also the extreme evil that we are capable of. It gives you the most balanced view of humanity and human government there is. And it also gives you God's view on it. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and 15. I'm going to go through these scriptures relatively quickly just to give you an overview. Um, it says, And when you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And God says, okay, you know, there's going to come a time when you're going to ask for a human king. You're not going to be happy with just God being your king. You're going to want a human king. And God says, that's fine. You can do that. I allow that. Um, but he also goes on to say, but he's going to abuse his power. Be aware of that. Okay, on the one hand. But on the other hand, also, make sure... That whoever rules you is of your brethren. And um, you know this, what this text hints at, other texts in the Old Testament um, you know, amplify a lot more. The fact that in the Hebrew Republic you had proportional representation. The idea of proportional representation actually comes from the Hebrew government, from the Hebrew, Hebrew Republic. I mean, the, the Greeks later developed it with a democratic system, but they weren't the first. The first thing that we have in writing representing it is this. And whenever they chose judges and local leaders, it had to always be from among the people. So only someone from among the people whom the people trusted and knew could govern the people in that area or could judge the people in that area. So that principle of representation from amongst the people actually comes from the Bible. And I think it's a good principle. Okay. 
um, Deuteronomy 28, it says, The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, uh, over you to a nation neither you nor your fathers have known. That's if you, that's when you disobey the Lord. Because the Lord says, okay, you're going to, Moses says, when I die, you guys are going to go south. You're going to be bad. You're going to start worshipping other gods and disobeying the Lord's commandments. And then he says, I'm going to take you and your king that you set over you. <laughs> In other words, the king is not the highest government. God is the highest government. Okay? And I'm going to take you to another nation. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And verse 37 says, And you shall become a, a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. In other words, there will be consequences. So we see that, that even when a king is appointed, he's never the highest authority. God, from the beginning, wanted man to rule the earth, but wanted man to rule the earth under him, under his authority and, and as his representative. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, verse 4 and 5 says, When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. And then it says in verse 5, I just read that to give you the context. That's when the law was given. What happened when the law was given? Thus, the Lord, Yahweh, became king in Jeshurun. Jeshurun is just another word for Jacob or for Israel. Um, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together, the Lord Yahweh became king. So all along God wanted to be king, but he wanted to rule through human beings. And then it says in Joshua 8, uh, verse 40 and 42, and just to give you a bit of background, 400 years earlier when God is speaking to Abraham, he says to them, You're not, I'm going to give you this land, this land of Canaan. I'm going to give it to you and your descendants, but not yet. Anyone know the reason why God said not yet? He said, For the iniquity of the Amorites had not yet, has not yet been fulfilled. In other words, there are people living there, and they, they're pretty bad people, but their iniquity has not yet been fulfilled. I'm still giving them a grace period. And then God gave them 400 years in which time during which Israel was in, in Egypt. And then God said, okay, that's it. And he brought Israel as a form of judgment upon the nations of Canaan. Just like he would later bring the Babylonians as a form of judgment against Israel. Even Israel could not possess the land if they were unrighteous. Right? But listen to what, what it says. It says, and this is just a representative sample. There's a lot more there. So it says, so Joshua struck the whole land the hill country of the, uh, and the Negev uh, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord commanded. And uh, Joshua, co uh, Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So what we see here is God, there's a, in Canaan there's already government system. But it's a government system that is evil and that is under God's judgment. God says, I'm taking it away and I'm replacing it with you Israelites. So, here's the, th the thing I want you to get from that. Even though God appoints human government, see it from Genesis 1, he wants man to rule the earth. God is not pleased with all human government. We should not make the mistake of thinking that. Now, I hear so many people quoting verses like Romans 13 out of context and saying that you know, God appoints human government, so don't complain. Don't say anything against human government. God is not happy with all human government. 
And especially in a democracy, it's our duty to hold those who govern us accountable and to take part in government through public discourse, through becoming part of the public discussion of what should happen and what is best for our country. That's our duty. And especially as Christians, we should stand up to do that. If God calls us to be salt and light in society, then it means we must be salt and light in government as well. Um, In Judges 3, verse 8 and 10, it says, Therefore the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan uh, Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. And then it says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Uh, what was the hymn there? Uh, now I can't remember. I think it was um, Othniel. Yes, it was Othniel, one of the, the judges. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went uh, to war, and the Lord used him to liberate Israel. So what we see here is, even though God had just a generation before used Israel as a tool of judgment against the Canaanites to drive them out, here God was using other human government as an instrument of judgment over Israel who had now turned away from him. And for eight years they, they were basically in slavery, and then God raised up someone to liberate them again. In um, Fast forward to the, to the era of the kings. You know, we went from the judges to the kings. The, the, last, the last judge was Samuel the prophet, and he appointed the first king, who was Saul the king. And it says, And the Lord makes poor and rich, and he brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make, him sit, to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed one. You see God's commitment again to his king, to human rule, to his anointed one. And ultimately we know that Jesus fulfills fulfills that. In 1 Samuel 10, from verse 18, uh, thus says the Lord, Samuel says to, to, um, to the nation, to Israel, I brought you up from Israel out of, sorry, I brought you up, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Then Samuel told the people and the, uh, the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book. Notice here that Two things. The one is, I want you to notice that seeming tension between God's positive view of kingship. He wants man to rule the earth. And you may set a king over yourselves when you get to the promised land, according to, to Deuteronomy. And yet, when they set a king over, it seems like God feels rejected. You know, now you've rejected me as king. So it's, you know, God was king in Deuteronomy. But now you want a human king. But God said they're allowed to appoint a human king. I mean, what's going on here? What's this, this seeming tension between God as king and the human king? And, and of course, we know that all of this is, is a tension that's been created in the Old Testament that plays towards Jesus, who is both Yahweh and a human. And then Yahweh becomes king in the form of a human, Jesus. So we, we, we know it's building up to that. But the, the other thing I want you to notice in verse 25 is it says, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book. 
In other words, according to God, all government governments have rights, what they may do, and they have duties, what they must do. And when you when you throw out one of them, and usually it's the duties that get thrown out, <laughs> there's trouble, and the power to rule and to govern gets abused. God does not look kindly upon that. From the beginning, God says there are rights, yes, but there are also duties. You have a responsibility if you're in power. That God expects of you. Uh, 1 Samuel 12, verse 13 to 15, it says, And now behold the king whom you have chosen from whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set uh, a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. Any human government must ultimately be subject to heavenly government, to God's government. God must always rule, and any rulers must represent God. They must fear the Lord and represent Him in doing the good that He wants to do to the people that they rule. And when that doesn't happen, God does bring judgment. 1 Samuel 16, this is after Saul had badly messed up and really abused his power as king badly. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, your, your shofar, the word the horn there is the, the word shofar. That's where some of the symbolism of, of our name shofar comes from. Uh, they used to fill the shofar with oil to anoint kings and priests for service. So we feel that's part of God's calling on us as well. So fill your shofar with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Um, what we see there, one of the things we see there is that the ideal human government, the ideal king in this case, is someone that's anointed by God and someone that's chosen by God. Someone who can represent him because they have his spirit inside of them. Second Samuel 5 verse 3 and 12 says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. There's a lot there. Um, I'm just going to sort of scan through it. One thing is that, he made a covenant. In other words, he accepted the kingship by making a covenant with the people. In other words, when you rule the people according to Scripture, you make an agreement to them, with them. And what is that agreement? That you'll rule for the sake of the people. For their good. That's what it says at the end there. And what he also knew is that the Lord established him as king. And if the Lord establishes you, then you will be accountable to the Lord for what you do. And then in, in 2 Samuel 7, we have this powerful scripture. Because even David, I mean, he's, he was, the Davidic age is seen as the golden age of Israel. When Israel conquered all its enemies, and Israel was for once in their life the top dogs. <laughs> for once this little nation, you know, you know, you had other nations coming and literally becoming their vassals and, and bringing tribute and stuff to them and, and, and submitting to, to their rule. Um, other kings submitting to David. 
you know, and it's seen as the golden age. But even David's rule was not perfect, far from it. I mean, he did some really bad things, if you can read the scripture. But, so even the ideal Jewish king made bad mistakes. Now listen to what it says in, in 2 Samuel 7, from verse 12. It says, when your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, a temple in other words, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, David was just a a type, a picture of the ideal king, the ideal human ruler. And uh, we know that Solomon was not that guy. Um, (laughs) That guy came later. Uh, listen to Daniel, uh, just the last Old Testament scripture, Daniel 4 verse 32, where God says to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, as you shall, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Because he ruled, remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king of his time. No, he, wasn't even a, he wasn't only a king, he was an emperor. He had kings under him. He was an emperor. He ruled the greatest empire of his time, which stretched from Europe all the way into the east, in Babylon. And he says, he says to, to Nebuchadnezzar, who did not acknowledge him, God, as, as, as the ultimate rule, he says, you'll be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You see the sovereignty of God in that? Now, this is a very challenging scripture for us, even as Christians, because Let's be honest. Who of us really think that in practice God rules the kingdoms of men? We doubt it, right? We look around us. We see the mess around us. We see all governments messing up and we think, no, you know, surely God doesn't rule the kingdoms of men. But I mean, this scripture is very clear and it's not the only one. God does. Um, And then in the New Testament, Luke 1, verse 31 onwards says, And behold, this is the angel speaking to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Does that sound familiar to you? 2 Samuel 7, right? We'll give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And listen to what Jesus says in, in Luke 22, verse 29. He says and to the disciples, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. So Jesus becomes that ideal, ultimate human ruler, but once again he delegates his rule and says, I delegate the rule of the kingdom to you. Revelations, right at the end of the Bible, uh, it says, And the seven... Angels blew the, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, Yahweh, and of his Christ, his anointed human king. That's what the word Christ means. The anointed human king. And he shall reign forever and ever. In other words... Creation will be ruled by a human king forever and ever. And his bride will be beside him. Can you see why I say that God, from the beginning, intended humans to rule earth? And he has made a plan for humans to rule the earth, but to do it right. Obviously, things went badly wrong somewhere in the middle. 
And that's the context within which we as Christians should see human government. So to come back to our scripture in Isaiah 33 verse 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. And that means that as God's representative, we as Christians should make work of becoming involved in human government. It's our responsibility. We should, we're called to be salt and light. Look at all the examples we have throughout biblical history. Joseph ruled Egypt. Daniel who ruled not only Babylon, but, but the Medo-Persian Empire after that, under the king. Think about, in modern times, uh, William Wilberforce, who served in the British Parliament for decades. I think he was in Parliament for something like 20 years, more than 20 years, before he got the, the anti-slavery, uh, before he abolished the slave trade. And then I think it took another 20-odd years before he could abolish slavery as a whole. And, and his driving force, the very driving force that drove him in Parliament to do these things was his Christian conviction that he represents God and should do good. He should act for the good of the people the way that God would have. Think about Martin Luther King Jr. and his band of churches, African-American churches and, and, and the white churches who, who joined them, who, who formed the crux of the American civil rights movement. And how their non-violent approach eventually broke through. Think about even in South Africa, how involved the church was in the struggle. Okay, now, after the struggle, you know, after, after political power um, came into play, the church has unfortunately been marginalized. But I mean, if you think about guys like Desmond Tutu and a whole list, long list of other Christian leaders who were integrally involved in the struggle to get South Africa um, into a democracy. We're supposed to do that. Think about in, in, in modern times, just recently, uh, Chief Justice Mukherjee, who's a Christian, a very committed Christian, and all the things that happened around the Constitutional Court that, that he played a key role in. So, we as Christians should make work of representing God in all levels of society. That means, as a parent, I should eventually try and become part of the governing body of my school. How can I be salt and light in my school and complain about the school if I'm not willing to go and serve in the governing board of my school? We as Christians should become part of the municipalities and we should ideally, where possible, stand for office. But here's the thing, not all of us can. Right? And where we cannot personally represent God in, in public life, we should vote for people who can represent us and therefore represent God in public life. In the public sphere, in, in municipalities, in, in government and so on. Um, and the question that we started off with, the people that we vote for, will they really be able to represent us? And will we be held accountable for how they represent us? I want you to think about that when you vote. But I also want you to think about something else. And sorry, I'm going a little bit over time, but bear with me for, for a little while. Um, you get national elections and you get local elections. And there are two things that are important in any election. 
values, what we've been talking about now, representing accurately, and service. Because government is not just about values. It's also about how can you execute those values. Right? So on the national level, the values are slightly more important because that's where the laws are made. That's where the constitution can get changed, you know, um, under certain, certain circumstances. That's where government policy is made at the highest level. So the values are especially important on a national level. But also on a national level, service is, is important. So it's not only people who have the right values, but people who have the right competence who can actually deliver the services. When you look at, at the local level, the, the, the balance shifts a bit. The values are still important, but the service, I think, is more important. So you don't only want people who have the right values, but especially on local government level, you want people with the right skills. You want people with the right competence who can actually deliver services to the communities and to the people. So bear that in mind when you vote, that you, you, don't, you want to vote with, for people with the right values, but also for people with the right competence. Here's a suggestion that I want to make. And, and or let, let me rather not put it as a suggestion. Let me put it as the way I'm going to vote in the local elections. And, and you are by no means obliged in any way to vote the way I'm going to. But I'm just going to try and show you my reasoning so you can see how I try to think through this as a Christian. I'm not saying I'm, I'm right. In the local government elections, you're going to get two votes. You're going to vote for an actual councillor, for, for a person, and their little photo will be up there. And then you're going to vote for a party, a proportional representation vote. Um, now, if I know the counselor and I think, okay, this counselor is a good counselor, say he's, for argument's sake, from the ANC or from the DA, just for argument's sake, but I know this guy, he really is competent and, and he, he's a really a good leader, and I think, okay, he will actually, even though in terms of his values he may, might not represent me, in terms of his competence, he's going to be a good manager. He's got the experience and he's got the skills for example, then I might say, okay, in order to get the service aspect right, I'm going to vote for him because he's going to do a good job on that. But, so as an as a individual, I'm going to vote for him. He's a little picture. I know him, I trust him uh, in terms of he can deliver. But in terms of my, the value vote, I'm going to vote for the ACDP as a party, the proportional representation vote. So that the ACDP can still, for instance, represent my Christian values within the local municipality. So that would be one way of voting. Um, I don't think there's an exact right and wrong. Vote for people. If you know a councillor and you think they're going to do a good job, by all means vote for them. But let us make sure that there is a Christian voice, even in local government. Um, many people are afraid that, okay, but if you vote for a smaller party, then you're dividing the vote. I must say I got a little bit irritated. I get these... I don't know where they got my number, the, 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 the DA, but they keep sending, the ANC and the DA keep sending me SMSs, you know, and, and one of the things the DA the whole time says, don't divide the vote. But that, and I, why it irritates me is because it's a lie. There is proportional representation. There's no such thing as, the, you know, dividing the vote. The best thing that can happen to the very liberal DA is if they don't govern alone, if they need to form a coalition with someone like the ACDP who can keep them in check, because they're very liberal. I mean, if you go and check their policies, for instance, let me just give you an idea. For conscience sake, I cannot vote for any party that does not oppose abortion. That's where I stand. 
You're welcome to disagree with me if you want to, but my Christian convictions tell me that killing an unborn baby is not right. And I will, I will not vote for any party that, that does not oppose that. None of the, the, the top three parties, ANC, DA, or EFF, oppose that. The, I think both the ANC and the EFF are pro-abortion. The DA is neutral, I think, but they don't oppose it. And therefore, I'm hesitant, very hesitant to vote for them, just on that matter. Um, but the, the ACDP has said that wherever they can, they're going to work with the DA. And they're going to try and get the DA into power. So any vote for the ACDP, for instance, is in effect a vote for a, I almost want to say, Christian voice within the DA, as an example. So I want to make sure that there are Christian voices in South Africa um, and in South African government. So, you know, to do that, I'm going to vote for Christian people, but I'm also going to pray for the Christians in the different parties to stand up. Do you know that, for instance, the ANC was started by Christians? Did you know that? I mean, Albert Latuli, I mean, he's one of the great heroes of our country. He was such a committed Christian. And do you know that there are many Christians inside the ANC, for instance? Unfortunately, with the party politics going on, their voices have been very silent recently. But we should pray for those men and women to stand up and to be a Christian voice, a strong Christian voice within the ANC. And the same for all the other parties. Okay. So, why I'm sharing this is I just want us to think through. I don't think the Bible is to the detail prescriptive. You must vote for this party or that party. But we must vote our values. We must vote our values. And we must make sure that we as Christians are represented in government. And we should pray for government. We should work I love that scripture that, that Kuba shared at the beginning. We should work for the welfare of our city and we should pray for the welfare of our city. We should be salt and light. So I want to encourage you to encourage your friends and family to go and vote on Wednesday and to think about how they vote. In the end, God is our judge. God is our lawgiver. God is our king. He will save us. No human government will save us. Even if the ACDP, who is a Christian party, came into government, that would by no means solve all our problems. <laughs> by no means. They might be better in some ways than some other parties who are not Christian, but it would not solve our problems. They're a human government. They're fallen. They, all human governments will be disappointing, except one. The son of David, when he finally rules, there will be no more disappointments. And human government will be perfect government, God's government. But until then, we must vote our values, but hope in God. Amen. Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, that we do have, Lord, the opportunity, Lord, to influence what happens in our country, Lord. And Father, we, we don't want to look at any um, political party and say that they are irredeemable. And we also don't want to look at any human party and say that they are perfect. Lord, we know that all human beings in every party, Lord, have something of your image left in them. And we want to appeal to that and pray, Lord, that you will, Lord, give people just the wisdom, Lord, to, to act out of their consciences. 
not to ignore their consciences. And, and when their consciences bug them, Lord, even if they're not Christians, Lord, when their consciences bug them, Lord, about the wrong things that they're doing, that they will listen to it. Lord, no matter what party they're in. But Lord, we also, Lord, just want to maintain a healthy dose of, I want to call it skepticism about human government because we know that, that just like us, Lord, people who are in politics are fallen, Lord, and they face lots of temptations, Lord, to compromise. And we know, Lord, that ultimately the solution is for Jesus to be king. No political party will save us. You will save us, Lord, and you alone. Lord, and, and, and we just pray, Lord God, that, that you'll give us as Christians a way, Lord, to get involved in politics in South Africa in a way that allows us to really be salt and light, to really make a positive difference. We pray, Lord, that you'll open up doors for us, Lord, to step into positions of, of leadership, Lord, whether that be in a school governing board or in a local municipality or in parliament, Lord. And we pray, Lord God, that you'll give us wisdom in how we vote and how, how we interact with government in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray, Lord, for these upcoming elections, Lord. We pray, Lord, that just for your grace upon it, Lord, we pray, Lord, that there will not be violence, Lord. We pray, Lord, that the elections will be free and fair and, and, and that there won't be intimidation. And we pray, Lord, that you'll grab your church in this country by its conscience, Lord, and that you'll help us to vote our values and to vote wisely so that there will be more people who represent you in every level of government. In Jesus' name, amen.